If you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to John's Gospel, the 17th chapter. Tonight, we are going to consider the first five verses of John chapter 17. This is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Others call it his prayer of consecration. I think there's good reasons for both, both titles, if you were to title John chapter 17. It is one prayer, but it has three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his original disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for those who will believe through the word of his apostles. Tonight, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself. And as we read and meditate upon those verses, I want us to pay attention to three things. In verse 1 tonight, I want us to pay attention to the occasion that Jesus prays. In verses 1 through 4, I want us to pay attention to the request that Jesus makes. And lastly, in verse 5, I want us to see how Jesus expounds his request. Before we read God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer. Please join me in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, we quiet ourselves this evening to hear your word because we need it. We ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we would behold the glory of your Son, that you would prepare us to be fed by him at his table. So I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you my rock and my redeemer. We ask that through the preaching of your word, Christ will be glorified and we would grow in his grace. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The occasion for Jesus to pray is that his hour has finally come. Verse 1 begins with, When Jesus has spoken these words, well, this prayer is concluding a a night of teaching. It is the night where he instituted the supper. It's also 
Here in John's gospel, we see the discourse that he gave to his disciples. It's his last night with his disciples prior to the cross. The evening, as Nick read for us, began with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples because the hour had come. Now, this was an act that was reserved for servants, and it illustrates how low Jesus was willing to go to serve the ones he loves, and in doing so, giving them an example to follow. Around the table, Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot as his betrayer. Satan enters Judas. Judas goes out into the night. Jesus wash the feet of Judas, knowing that Judas will betray him. After his resurrection, Jesus is going to leave his disciples, so he spends this evening teaching them. He teaches them about the trouble that they will face in this world. He teaches them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who will be sent to them. He teaches them about the place that he is going to prepare for them. He is getting them ready for his departure. And throughout his ministry, Jesus has taught his disciples about the intimacy he shared with his father. Now, the disciples witness the intimacy between the son and the father. Here, they watch the son pour out his heart to the father. That is the setting, but the occasion is that the hour has come. The hour, this hour, has been referenced several times in John's gospel. It was referenced there at the beginning of John 13. It was first referenced at the wedding in Cana. Remember when Jesus' mother asked him to perform a miracle, and in John chapter 2, verse 4, he says, My hour has not come. After teaching in the temple, this happened several times. Some of the Jews sought to arrest him. But John tells us in John chapter 7, verse 30, that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And during what we now call Holy Week, after he's entered Jerusalem, as many are gathering for the feast, before Jesus has entered the upper room with his disciples, some Greeks come to Philip and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to their request? In John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour is the occasion in which Jesus will die and be glorified. It is the culmination of his earthly mission. It is the time for the climactic completion of his assignment. The most important events in all of history happen in this hour. The hour, it spans several days. In the hour, he will triumph over Satan. He will usher in the new creation. He will fulfill prophecies, types, and symbols of redemption. 
And in the hour, he will make atonement for sin. All of human history hinges on one weekend. All of history hinges on this hour. Under the old covenant, God dealt with the sins of his people on the day of atonement. One day a year, the high priest entered into the holies of holies to sprinkle blood from a sacrifice on the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The holy of holies was the innermost part of the Jewish temple. It's where God's presence dwelled. The blood sprinkled on the mercy seat foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus' own blood that will atone for the sins of his people. In Leviticus 16, verse 13, we learn that the priest, as he went in, he had to carry a a censer of burning coals, burning incense. And as he entered into the Holy of Holies, he had to swing the censer in such a way that it created a cloud of smoke between him and the mercy seat. Because it says there in Leviticus that if there wasn't that cloud, And that high priest, being a sinner himself, was to look upon the presence of God there dwelling upon the mercy seat. He would die. He could not behold God's glory and live. The hour has come. Jesus is the high priest and the sacrifice. And here, in his priestly duty... He is offering up his prayer as incense before the mercy seat of heaven. He is preparing himself to open the way to God's presence by his own sacrifice. John Owen wonderfully states it this way. And I quote, By the same eternal fire by which he offered himself a bloody sacrifice to make atonement of sin, He kindled in his most holy soul those desires that all the benefits of his sacrifice should be given abundantly to his church. In praying to his father, he is kindling his most holy desires, preparing himself to enter the hour to offer his blood on the mercy seat of heaven. The hour is not Fate determining the destiny of Jesus. The hour has been ordained by his father from eternity past. And the son willingly came into the world for this hour. He came into this world for this hour to make atonement for sin. And in this prayer, we see the son willingly embracing and entering into the hour before him. Then, in verses 1 through 4, we see the request Jesus makes. It's one request. Jesus' request is to be glorified. On the evening before the cross, how does Jesus pray for himself? He says, glorify your son. Then he tells us there, in verse 1 at the end, what is the reason for this request? That your son may glorify you. To glorify here, the the verb means to clothe in splendor. He is seeking to be clothed in splendor so that he 
and his Father will be praised. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. Such is the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father delights in glorifying the Son, and the Son seeks to glorify the Father. The Father and the Son share glory. Jesus goes on to explain how he glorifies his Father. He gives two ways in the passages. In verse 2, we see, and in verse 3, Jesus glorifies his Father by imparting life to sinners. The end of verse 2, it says, To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is one of the ways that the Son glorifies the Father. Jesus is giving us a window into the divine decree. Before the foundation of the world was laid, according to the secret counsel of the triune God, the Father gave of people to his Son. The Son will give eternal life to the ones that the Father gives to him. What does that mean? It means that his people are dead until he gives them life. This is one of the many places that we find what we call the doctrines of grace on the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus himself teaches us that the Father has not asked him to be a hypothetical high priest. The Father has not asked him to make an atonement that will potentially be saving. The Father did not look down the quarters of time and see who would choose Jesus and then ask the Son to go and die for them. No. The Father gave Jesus a bunch of sinners to be their high priest, to make atonement for their sins, to bring them from death to life. That's the inescapable meaning of to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The Son glorifies the Father by being the Redeemer of God's elect. The predestination, as it says in the Westminster Confession, is a high mystery. So we must be careful in how we speak about it. But we must be careful not because we want to avoid offending our modern sensibilities. Here we see we must be careful to speak about predestination and the doctrines of grace because ultimately it's tied to the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. We must speak about it because it is revealed in God's Word. And it is revealed in God's Word for the praise, reverence, and admiration of our God. It is revealed in God's Word so that all those who are saved would live humbly, always giving glory to God for their salvation. And what is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Jesus here in verse 3 is identified as the source of eternal life. And in it we understand the nature of eternal life in verse 3. And this is eternal life that you know, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus in this portion of his prayer is claiming to be God, that God and He, the Christ, offer eternal life. He claims to be of the same substance, equal in power and glory. And He tells us what is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ. But here, knowing is not limited to having intellectual knowledge. It is intellectual and more. It is relational 
It is knowing the fellowship and is the knowing of personal trust. In the person of Jesus, eternal life entered the world of death so that sinners could be restored to fellowship with the triune God. If you are not a Christian, how has your search for eternal life been going? Have you found eternal life in romance, in education, in your career, in politics, in philanthropy? This world and the things of this world cannot provide eternal life. The one who predestines the elect to eternal life also ordains the means by which sinners are brought to life. If you are not a Christian, could this be the night that God has ordained for you to pass from death to life? Is it the night? Would you call on the name of Jesus and be saved? Would you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, trust in him alone, and know the eternal love and fellowship of the Father and the Son? Jesus glorifies his Father by imparting life to sinners. The second way that we see in verse 4 that Jesus glorifies the Father is by completing the mission given to him. There in verse 4, look back, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is the work? The work is what the Father gave him to do. The end of his work is the cross and resurrection. And now that the hour has come, he says that the work is done because he will not turn away from completing his mission. The cross is the culmination of over three decades of work. His work was his teaching. It was his miracles. It was his training of his disciples. And his work was every moment in between. To make, to make atonement for sin required a life of full obedience. Perfect, total, unceasing obedience. Every moment from the manger to Mount Calvary, Jesus obeyed his heavenly father, doing the work that his father gave him to do. Now there are two distinct aspects of Christ's obedience, and both are required for redemption. There is the passive obedience of Christ, and there is Christ's active obedience. The passive obedience is what he had to suffer because of our disobedience. The active obedience is what he had to do in order to merit the reward of eternal life. And the reason is that we see in the law of God that there is penal sanctions for breaking the law of God, and there's also positive requirements for keeping the law of God. There are positive demands for righteousness. And his work is to take care of both, both taking the penalty and doing what righteousness required. In his act of obedience, he secured justification. He lived the life that we could not live, and therefore Christians receive his righteousness. In his passive obedience, he paid the penalty for sins. He died the death we should have died. He bears the curse, the judgment for sin, and therefore Christians are truly forgiven. 
As John Murray explains, his passive obedience was not pure passivity. He's not an involuntary victim. He embraces the hour and he chooses to suffer. Because it's not through the incarnation that redemption was secured. But even further, it's not just through mere death that salvation was accomplished. And we could go even further and say it wasn't simply through death on a cross. It was death on a cross as an act of obedience that made atonement for sin. Jesus glorifies the Father by completing the mission given to him. And lastly, in verse 5, Jesus expounds his request. He goes on to specify the glory he is seeking. Look back at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. Jesus has already affirmed that he is God, and here he further confirms that he is God by claiming to have preexistence. He reveals that he existed before the world existed. The sun had no beginning. Before the world was created, he was clothed in glory in the presence of his Father. But here, for the sake of his mission, he has taken on our humanity. He has taken on flesh. And in doing so, his full glory is veiled. And throughout the Gospels, we see glimpses of his glory. But it wasn't like Jesus was walking around radiating beams of light. He lived a human life. He lived a real human existence. If he walked in this earth, clothed in the glory of heaven, he would have been unapproachable. No one would have been able to stand in his presence because we are sinners. God dwells in unapproachable light. If his glory wasn't veiled, the rulers of this age would have never crucified Jesus. They would have never crucified him because they wouldn't be able to stand in his presence, much less nail him to a cross. Now Jesus here prays for himself and he yearns to be clothed in the glory of heaven again. But in doing so, he's not asking to give up the flesh that he's taken on. As D.A. Carson says, he's, he's not asking for de-incarnation. No, he's asking that the body that he now has will be clothed in the glory of heaven. At the resurrection, his human body will be glorified with the glory he possessed before the world was created. Christian, you will be given a glorified body like Christ's glorified body so that you will be able to glorify and enjoy the presence of the God who dwells in unapproachable light for all eternity. Without a glorified body, you would not be able to do so. But prior to the return to that glory, Jesus will experience anti-glory. 
on the cross. There are no signs of Christ's splendor, only his humility. But before the weekend ends, his prayer will be answered. He will be glorified. But first, the cross.